good to see each of you, and glad you're here for our third message on Psalm 110. The previous messages are online, and you can also, uh, I think there's some CDs out there if, you're, if you didn't get last Sunday's, or the last two Sundays. I wanted to make sure we put everything into three messages because there's so much to say on this psalm, but I I made myself do it because uh, I know that some of this is new material to you, um, and I know that it's it's introductory, uh, and I'm not that good at being simple. Even though I have a simple mind, I'm not that good at being simple, so hopefully this will... Uh, these three messages will be of a good introduction for you to Psalm 110. So let's look at Psalm 110. We talked about the enthronement of Christ, where the Lord said to the Son of God, uh, Jesus the Lord, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is David foreseeing this in the future in the New Testament and it speaks of the ascension and the reign or the uh, enthronement of Christ as king at the right hand of God. In other words, the Old Testament, this is one of the uh, references, the Old Testament speaks of a coming king, one who will reign And this is one of those references that speaks. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the kingdom of God had come. And then in verse 4, we talked about how that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that was last Sunday. We talked about how that this king who sits on his throne in verse 1, is also a priest on his throne. In verse 4, he's a king and a priest. Now this is uh, totally unique to the Old Testament. Uh, As as I mentioned last week, there's only one uh, man in the Old Testament who is both a king and a priest, and that's Melchizedek. And you, you meet him in Genesis 14. But uh, one of the reasons for this is that God did not trust a man with all the offices. He couldn't be like a king and a priest and a prophet all at the same time. So he separated the offices. There was a, a king named Uzziah, who's one of the more famous kings uh, in the Old Testament, reigned a long time. The Lord helped him until he was strong, it says. And then he got to thinking he was something, something else. So he decided he would, this is Second Chronicles twenty six seventeen. He decided, hey, since I'm the king, it's good to be the king. I'll also be the priest. And he started to go into the temple to offer incense to God. <clears throat> Eighty priests ran in front of him and said, don't do this. This is, this is the worst possible thing you can do. And it made him angry. And his, as he began to push his way through all the priests, but God stopped him. 
You know how he did it? He smote him with leprosy. And right in front of all those priests, the king broke out with leprous sores. And they hustled him out and he was happy to go. And it says in Second Chronicles 17 that he lived alone as a leper till the day of his death. It was, he was like a living example. God does not combine king and priest. Now, I think one of the reasons for this is, uh, have y'all heard uh, the saying, uh, uh, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know why that is? Because of the fallen nature of man. And that's why we have different uh, levels of government. Uh, We have the executive branch and legislative branch uh, and what's the judicial branch. Because our forefathers believed in the fallen nature, sinful nature of man. And they didn't trust the combination of powers into one office. They didn't want the president, for example, making a lot of executive decisions and just passing laws, but we won't go there. Uh, However, when Jesus came, guess what? God said, you can trust him. Absolute power will not corrupt the Son of God. He put him at his right hand as king and gave him the priesthood forever because he honored him as such and said to us, he's, he's good to go. And I'm, this will be his position forever, both king and priest. So that's what you have in verse 4, is God combines the offices of king and priest. So he's a king in verse 1, a priest in verse uh, 4, and then beginning in verse 5 through 7, we find that he is a judge. Now this again is unique in that you hear a lot about Christ as Savior, Christ as even priest, Christ as king, Christ as a babe in the manger, but how about Christ as judge? Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. David's saying this to God the Father. The Lord, Adonai, is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, his anger. He will shatter kings. So here is a day of judgment that is coming. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. So here is Christ not only viewed as king in verse 1, and as priest in verse 4, but as judge in verse 6. Now, this, these verses, verses 5 through 7, this third section of the chapter, um, this is difficult. If you, if just reading it, exactly what is he referring to? What is this day of wrath? And I believe it is this. The Lord at the right hand. I think all this psalm, to be consistent, refers to the first century events. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. When did that happen? Right after his resurrection. 
He was at the right hand of God. It's the most quoted reference in the New Testament out of the Old. All of the references in the New Testament to this psalm have it as past tense because when Jesus went ascended back to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. In verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When did that happen? Well, is Jesus our high priest now? He's now the high priest because you can't separate his offices. He is king and priest. In other words, you go to God through him. Amen? He's our high priest. And Melchizedek simply means he's both king and priest. And that in Melchizedek, you don't bring an offering or a sacrifice like you did with Mosaic priesthood. So what's verse 5? The Lord at your right hand, he's shattering kings and executing judgment. Um, and here's the way I view this. And I, I, I should have put this on the, gotten this on the board, but uh, I'll quote it to you so you can get it. Uh, it's Hebrews 7, 12. A change of priesthood, which is what you have in verse 4 requires a change in the law. That's Hebrews 7.12. If you're going to change the priesthood, see, in the Old Testament, the priesthood was from Moses and Aaron and had the temple and you brought sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 1 says you brought the sacrifices to the priest. And only a Levite from the tribe of Levi could be a priest. And you met certain qualifications. Well, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the sacrifice so that you don't have to bring the sacrifice. And the church is the temple so that you don't have to go to a temple. So if you're going to change the priesthood, Hebrews 7, 12, you have to change the law. There has to be a different law and different requirements. So Hebrew, uh, Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7, is about the change that came about in that first century. It came, it came to the two groups, kings of the land. The word, uh, uh, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, these kings are mentioned by Peter in Acts 4. Uh, this is Acts four twenty six. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers gathered against the Lord and his anointed. Uh, the kings of the earth, that's the land, uh, can be translated either way. Sometimes it's land, sometimes it's earth. But it may, I think it means the lands of, land of Israel here because he names them. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there was gathered against Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, that Roman soldiers, and the people of Israel. Herod and Pontius Pilate. Those are the kings, you see. That Psalm 110 verse 5 is meant, he will shatter kings. Did he shatter them? Well, what happened to Herod? His grandson, Herod Agrippa, in Acts 12 tells that after he arrested Peter, or he, he arrested James and had him killed, he arrested Peter, put him in prison, was going to kill him, 
but they, uh, he was released, an angel got him out. And he comes out, this is all in Acts 12, this Herod, a king that was against the church and against Jesus. Um, Herod comes out in these beautiful robes to the people who had come as emissaries from the land of Tyr. And in the land of Tyr, they came to ask for money. So they were saying, oh, you are such a great speaker. When we hear your voice, it's like the voice of a god. You are a god. And Herod heard that adulation, and he thought to himself, you know, they're right. I am like a god. And he received it. And in Acts 12, it says that God smote him with worms on the inside of his bowels. See, this would be he's shattering kings on the day of his wrath. Josephus tells about the... uh, Josephus was a historian writing in the first century. He said Herod had a burning fever, ulcerated entrails convulsions in, the, in his limbs, his arms and legs. Stank, had maggots inside of him, and gangrene in his private parts. Blech. That was a painful death, my friends. We know Christ is king, and we know Christ is priest, but have you seen him as judge? He shattered kings in the day of his wrath. And he says he will execute judgment among nations. Those are Gentiles. That was Pontius Pilate was an example there. What happened to Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate, after, he, after Jesus ascended to, to the right hand of the Father and was king and priest, he brought judgment on Pilate by having him removed. Roman, the Romans called Pilate back to Rome. He, he was so humiliated, so disgraced, Pilate actually... There are two stories about him. One is he committed suicide. The other is he moved to Pompeii, which had a volcano about five years later. So either one of those would be bad. So Pontius Pilate, there's a day of wrath and reckoning for those who resisted the kingdom of Christ in the first century. And by the way, I give you John 5:22 here the father judges no one but he has turned all judgment over to the son so we're right on track here by saying Christ is the one before whom we give account um, in verse 6 let me show you this one he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses uh, one of the things that happened there was the Romans, the Romans, after they had Nero killed, they began to fight among themselves. Civil wars broke out in 68 AD, and, and they killed each other. And thousands of Roman soldiers were lying everywhere in these huge civil wars, civil war battles. And then notice in verse 6 that he will... After he executes judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses, he shatters, and then the word there is, the Hebrew word is rosh, head, singular. Now, I am not sure why the translations make it a plural. The primary leader, the head, 
The King James uses the word heads, plural, but it's not plural in Hebrew. It is singular. It's the, it's the exact same word used in verse 7 when it says he drinks from the brook and therefore he'll lift up his head. Now, that is the exact same word in verse 6. He's going to shatter the head that is over the wide earth. Who's the head that's over the world? Absolutely. The devil. It's, it's, it's Genesis 3.15 all over again. Satan, God talks to Satan, Genesis 3.15, and he said, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to break your head. And here, David is just echoing that prediction. Jesus is going to not only judge in first century the, the, the Jews who rejected him, the rulers of, this, of the land of Israel, he's also going to judge Rome with the civil wars when there had been peace for decades but he's also going to judge the head over all of them, which was Satan himself. He's going to humiliate Satan in his death and resurrection and ascension and bring victory over the devil to his people. So that's all in that prediction. It is a most wonderful psalm detailed in its prophecy of victory and judgment that Jesus brings. And then he pauses in verse 7. He will drink from the brook, by the way. He will drink from the brook, by the way, and then he will lift up his head. What does that mean? Why does it end on that note? And I, th- I think it's this, that after he's finished in that first century judgment, uh, pull up the uh, timeline, show me the timeline that we have. This gives you an idea there's 40 years between the, uh, the baptism of Jesus and 70 AD. If, he's ba- if he was baptized about at 30, um, about 30 AD, and then 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple. Uh, and that, that time frame right in there, I think, is everything Psalm 110 speaks of. It speaks of that, where that arrow is between the cross and 70 AD. Ascension, priesthood, judgment. And in verse 7 he says, he will drink from the brook, by the way, and then he'll lift up his head. There'll be a pause after the judgments of the first century. But he lifts up his head. He is ready to do it again. He stands ready to judge wherever opposition comes against his kingdom. Remember the verse 1, sit at my right hand till all your enemies are your footstool. The evidence that Jesus is at the right hand of God in the first century was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the destruction of the Roman Empire and the civil wars that engulfed them and the death of Nero the Caesar before he even turned 35. This is the evidence that there is one who protected his church and rescued them and saved them from their enemies. And after he had finished rescuing and delivering and protecting and securing his church, he paused, he stepped back 
But don't think he is done. He will step in again if opposition comes and the world sheds the blood of his saints. He steps in again because Jesus is not only king, he's not only priest right now, but he's judge right now. I think the line is crossed when a nation begins to persecute and prosecute God's people. There's a lot of things a nation can do, but when they begin to shed the blood of saints, that's when Jesus will be there. He lifts up his head. He's looking around for the next one. He's refreshed. He's ready to go. Hallelujah. He is our Savior, Redeemer, Protector, King, and Priest, and He will judge the nations if they shed the blood of saints. So what does this give to us here? Uh, We said that the uh, people of Jerusalem were destroyed and the city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and the priesthood removed. When there was a change in priesthood, and there is in verse 4, there's a change in law. God totally removes old covenant possibilities. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll find at the Temple Mount, where the temple used to be, a Muslim mosque where Muslims worship. Dome of the Rock. Show me the, uh, show us the Dome of the Rock. That's where Solomon's temple used to be, and, and Jewish priests used to bring sacrifices from the people. There's another one. Give me the next one up. This is, if, if you can see, it's surrounded by Islamic worshipers. You know how long it's been there? 15, 1600 years. The temple has never been rebuilt. There has not been a Jewish sacrifice there for 2,000 years. When the priesthood is changed, Hebrews seven twelve, the law is changed. See, this is important because we need to know what priesthood and law we're under. Are we under the Ten Commandments to gain merit or do we gain our acceptance and our merit before God through Jesus Christ? Do we come to God and pray because we have been faithful over many years or we do, do we come to God and we pray and we ask for things because of the merits of Jesus Christ? Which law are you under? Which covenant do you function under? Don't mix them. Know this. God made a dramatic discontinuity between Old Covenant and New Covenant, and He dramatically illustrated what the new one is by absolutely removing every vestige of the old one. There is no old one. There's only a new one. The New Covenant of Jesus Christ. All right, here's here's the things that I would uh, leave with you. And uh, I, th- I think these are the lessons we would learn from this text this morning. One is this. We understand <clears throat> what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. It's not just a confession. He is actually the Lord. <laughs> Amen? I mean, He does things. He's not just sitting there at the right hand of God praying for us. He is the judge. When it says, 
I saw the Lord say to the Lord, sit at my right hand, oh, this Jesus the, of Nazareth was raised up and made Lord of all, and King of kings. To say he is Lord is to say he rules everything. The babe in the manger rules history. And nations should tremble before him. He's the mighty king. So the first thing is we we understand more what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Here's a second thing. We understand the need to be reconciled to God. That there be no opposition to God. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the kingdom of God. Because he is not only the Lord, he's the priest and he's the judge. And he will come against those who stand in front of the progress of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.19 puts it like this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and gave us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're his ambassadors. God makes his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. We urge you, therefore, brethren, be reconciled to God. Don't be on the wrong side of the camp. Be reconciled to God. And a third lesson we, we would learn is that we understand the importance of these first century events. Not just the crucifixion where he died for our sins, but the resurrection and ascension where he, where he took his position at the right hand of God to save us from our sins. And the, a day of judgment, which became a kind of paradigm of future judgments. And even the final one. See, there's a, there's a judgment at the end of the Old Covenant age, at 70 AD. And there's a judgment at the end of the New Covenant age, when Jesus comes again. That's uh, uh, tomorrow at 12... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't know when that is. <clears throat> but there's a judgment at the end of each Old Covenant and New Covenant. And the Old Covenant judgment of 70 A.D. is a little uh, picture, a little microdrama of the final judgment. And that's where men either trusted in, in the temple and their good works, or they trusted in Jesus Christ. Michael Hall, writing about the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, uh, says this, he says, I knew very little about the critical importance of this date. It marked the end of an era, an, an age. That is the age of Old Testament Judaism. It also marked the end of the temple and the priesthood of the Old Testament. And the keeping of the law. And the law is merit. And the covenant with ancient Israel. All came to a complete end. Abrupt end. In 70 AD. Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2 puts it like this. I think we have this verse. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. This is the English Standard Version. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But notice this. In these last days, 
He spoke to us by His Son. These last days. What does that phrase mean? Is it our last days? These last days. See, God had spoken to the Jewish people. He's writing to the Hebrews. He's spoken to the Jewish people in many ways through many prophets. But in these last days, He speaks to us, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, by His Son. Give me that time frame again. I'll show you. The, the last days is that period between the cross and resurrection and the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. The last days is the last days of old covenant Israel. Ending in a judgment. Not, uh, and there's a sense in which we can say their last days was the church's first days. So that's what we mean by last days. Now, let me just add this to it. Because I, I said last week I was going to talk about whether we're in the last days. <clears throat> and you get the drift that I don't believe we are. I believe they were. Their last days. And the phrase last days means the last days of the old covenant age. In fact, the signs, you've heard of the signs of the times? Now get this. In Mark chapter 13, you can read this, verses 1 through 7, 1 through 8. They come out of the temple, Jesus and his disciples. They've been worshiping. He's been teaching. Temple is still standing because it's about 33 AD. The temple is torn down in 70 AD by the Romans. So they come out of that temple and the disciples say, Jesus, look at the size of these stones. They would be like 15 feet high. Look at the size of these stones. What magnificent buildings these are to worship in. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, there will not be one of these stones that will be left standing on top of another. Well, they were amazed at that. What? This temple has been here for hundreds of years. This would be the end of everything we know. How can such a thing be? And they said, okay, we don't want to question you, but when will that take place? And what would be a sign that we would know it's near? And then Jesus in Mark 13, verse 1 and 2, 3, 4, you just read it there, he starts naming the signs, what we call signs of the times. They are signs for the destruction of, of that temple in 70 A.D. Now, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, here's what he says. Acts 1, 7, and 8. Give us that one. Acts 1, 7, and 8. Jesus ascends up into heaven. And the, and the, and the angels say, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who went up is going to come in like manner. And so they're asking him about these things. And he says, in that context of the second coming, it is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has put in his own power. Why is it that he can name signs that you should know? And here he says it's not for you to know. The reason is the signs are for that destruction of the temple in 70 AD. First century disciples. But the second coming has no signs. 
Therefore, we just need to make sure we are ready. And I'll tell you this, I, I know this, it's a little controversial. I get that. Give, but give me some flexibility, give me some leeway. But, but let me tell you what I got on my side. Every single prediction of the return of Christ has been wrong. Every one of them. Why? I think that if Jesus did decide to come and somebody predicted it accidentally, he'd change the date. <laughs> I'm not going now. They said I was coming that day. I'll move it up a week. Because no one knows. It's not for us to know. But he says, you shall be my witnesses. Our focus is not on God's schedule, but on God's mission. You shall be my witnesses. There's our calling, not figuring out the map of end times. I uh, respect, still do, uh, Dr. Jack Van Impey. Has it, does anybody heard of Jack Van Impey? Uh, I've seen him on TV some, and, and uh, I think he used to be a lot more well-known than he is now, but... Um, but he is big time on prophecy. Got a book on Revelation and, and end time events. And he's called the prophecy expert. Well, I, I used to go to a donut shop on Miller Road. Surprise! <laughs> but I no longer go there because it closed. <laughs> uh but I walked in there on Miller Road, right where you get at a gas station right there, and I walked in, and there sat Jack Van Impey, alone. This is back in 2010. And I thought, you know, he, he needs somebody to talk to. So I went over, and I didn't sit down. I thought that would be imposing, but I just stood there for a moment. I said, uh, Dr. Van Impey, I'm a pastor here in town, and I saw you sitting here. Just wanted to see where you are on end time calendar. Uh, this was 2010. He said, I said, tell me what you think today. Is Jesus coming soon? He said, and I will never forget the confidence. He said, mark it down. It's 2011. This was 2010. So I marked it down. Jesus didn't come. We just don't know. The best experts don't know. It is not for you to know the times and seasons. What it is for you to do is to bear faithful witness to the fact that He is alive, He has made atonement for our sins, and we don't want to be found on the wrong side of that when He comes again. Amen. Amen. Jesus is pictured so beautifully here in all his offices as king and as priest and as judge. And be ye reconciled to him. Amen? Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you today for this beautiful picture of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament and who he is to us 
and what he is to this world. And may he be praised and worshipped appropriately forever. And it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Amen.